Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. But as we've moved into September and Parliament have decided to come on back and uh, do their thing, it would only seem right that we are back spreading the good news of all the uh, different political angles there are in and around Portsmouth. And we've decided to ease ourselves back in gently, haven't we, Simon? A nice, just a quick chat show, maybe one guests, or not, as the case may be. <laughs> um, no, who wants to do easy things like that by making things simple for ourselves? No, what the heck? Let's let's not worry about things like that. We've gone for we've gone all in today. So, can I ask the the amassed ranks of the haven't opposition ensemble. Can you, um, if I could ask you to just introduce yourselves, the ward that you represent and the party that you're part of. And if I could start with yourself, Mark, as I know you're there and then pass around your colleagues until we've covered everybody. Hi, I'm Mark Coates. I represent Hayland East, um, new councillor as of May this year. Um, I'm Paul Gray. I represent Hailing West and I am also a new councillor as of this May. And I think one Labour, one Lib Dem. And if you can pass to your next colleague, please. Sorry, yeah, I'm a Liberal Democrat. You should, yeah, yeah Labour, neither of you right. should be ashamed. But Go all pass to your colleagues. <laughs> if we can take Gillian and Amy next. Hello, I'm I'm Gillian Harris. I'm, I'm the Labour uh, councillor in St Faith's Ward. Uh, and I'm Amy Redsell. I'm the Warren Park Ward councillor and I represent the Labour Party and I've done so since May last year. And I'm Philippa Gray. I'm a Lib Dem representing Bedhampton Ward. I'm not related to Paul in any way. We are both <laughs> Liberal Democrats and we do both have the same surname but last bit is pure coincidence do you know what i did not know that um well that shows how good our research was and gronia uh hi i'm gronia i am uh representing the emsworth ward i was elected in may for the haven green party marvelous thank you for that so um we've got a range of questions obviously with so many guests this evening we'll we'll uh, ask we've arranged to ask one of our principal guests to answer the question but if you think there are some some uh issues that we've missed then please feel free to chip in i'll kick off with the first question can i address this first to philippa please so for those folk who um don't know that the the haven't borough obviously you've got wards sort of as diverse as emsworth bedhampton I mentioned Warren Park, Hailing Island. Um, what are the similarities and differences and how would you say the sort of haven't borough as a whole differs from Portsmouth? Um, that is the only question for the podcast, isn't it, Ian? And I do have the rest of it to answer, I hope. It's a big question. Uh, yeah. Skim over a few of the differences. Start with haven't. It's called haven't borough. Um, I always saw Havant as a railway junction, but it's a manufacturing town with a long history of creating very good quality goods, uh, gloves made from kid leather, leather produced the uh, parchment on which the Treaty of Versailles was written. Uh, Emsworth is a, was a little fishing village next door to it, uh, absolutely delightful. On the other side, Bedhampton, where I live, used to be farmland, mentioned in Rural Rides by William Cobbett, if you remember your uh, history lesson and the Victorians. Uh, 
Going north, we have Lee Park, which is built as a huge council estate to take people from Portsmouth after World War II. And then you go further north, you've got uh, Stakes, Herbrook, Waterlooville, named after the pub that was named after the Battle of Waterloo, that was the heroes of Waterloo, uh, Cow Plain, Heart Plain, I think I've covered everywhere. But from my perspective, say you could debate the differences all night. Um, you could talk about the differences between a small town like Havant and a city like Portsmouth. But what matters and what's motivated, part of my motivation to become a councillor is everybody should have a sense of place. I've got a strong sense of what Bedhampton means to me. I doubt it's identical to what Bedhampton means to any other resident. I say plenty of scope for argument. But the role of the council is to create that sense of place. Give us somewhere that looks good. Uh, create a sense of cohesion. We need somewhere that's pleasant to live, somewhere we can enjoy living. And yeah, somewhere that's interesting. So does that uh, answer your question, Ian? I say I could talk. It it does, Philip. Thank you. Uh, would any of the other councillors like to 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 chip in on any um, on any of the other sort of variations and similarities that they see? Right. Uh, are you turned to me? Well, I'm going to speak as the other outsider because I'm obviously not from here, and I have lived in other places. And what uh, and I've lived in Portsmouth. And what I see about Portsmouth is it's got a very, very strong identity. I mean, nobody in Portsmouth doesn't know where they're living. It's Pompey, Pompey, Pompey. Uh, it's got the football club, it's got the dockyard, it's got a lot of uh, things that bring everybody together. So I see it's a little bit different, but it's still very clearly Portsmouth. Havant is uh, basically five places that have been moulded together, or not as the case may be, and it's really, really, really difficult to actually create a cohesive identity across the borough because people in Hailing do not want to see themselves as associated with Lee Park and Lee Park don't want to be associated with Emsworth, say, or, you know, every every single part of Havant has a strong identity all of its own. I was going to say something, but I think Gronje's probably just said absolutely everything. I was just going to say it from the Hailing point of view. So, yeah, exactly that, basically. You'll be hard pushed to convince a Hailing Islander that they have any real sense of the Havant borough as one entity. Um, a Hailing Islander is a Hailing Islander and they'll associate with Portsmouth as readily as they'll associate with Emsworth, say, for argument's sake. No, that's excellent. And, and it does uh, speak to some similarities um, within Portsmouth. You know, there is a there is a debate as to whether, you know, um, Simon and myself, who both live in Cosham, which is off the island, whether we can truly be claim Portsmouthian uh, identity so oh, no a lot of similarities yeah don't don't start that one on I me mean, it's a friendly show uh, Ian people absolutely. people people yeah, will I'm start sure. getting we'll try, we'll try and we'll try and keep it keep it pleasant Simon over to yourself yeah <laughs> okay so um you I guess um you can't really escape uh, the impact of of Portsmouth so um so much of the housing in the in the borough um it was built as an overflow for portsmouth um what would you what would you see haven't borough council do to address its own housing needs and if i can address that first uh to amy please no um so 
trying not to teach grandma to suck eggs housing is a massive issue nationally and there has been a deficit in social properties and affordable properties and that that can date back to the times of when Thatcher introduced the right to buy for and for many households that was a gateway to home ownership um, and especially in Lee Park um, so I'm the third generation of Lee Park my grandparents were the first my mother the second and being able to buy their own home was a massive thing for my grandparents it was something that they never thought they'd ever be able to do and that policy allowed them to do that but when that policy was introduced there was no buying uh, or um, building of additional properties which meant that for each property that was sold that wasn't being replaced and now 40 years down the line nearly 50 years down the line we're seeing major deficits in housing um, and i think you can also attribute that to the increase and the introduction of buy to let landlords and property developers um, for example, if you look at a one-bedroom flat on right move today, the price of that would be 100, uh, would be £850 per calendar month. And for the local housing allowance rate for a one-bedroom, assuming that that comes under the Portsmouth rate, would be £583.39 a month, which is quite a large deficit. So realistically, what needs to be done with housing, uh, local housing allowance being frozen, on a more local level, we need to be introducing, in my opinion, rent caps and the ability to regulate the market from a council perspective to ensure that our most vulnerable households are able to support themselves and are able to rent in an area that they grew up in. Me, for example, I grew up in Lee Park. I grew up in West Lee. I'd never lived anywhere else in my life other than for two years when I was at university. And I ended up moving back because I was homesick. There was no chance I would ever have been able to rent a property of my own. And I was only fortunate enough that my parents let me live in their spare room for the last like nearly five years to be able to afford to buy my own property. But that isn't the same for everyone. And more needs to be done to on a government level to increase the LHA rates and more needs to be done on a council level to ensure that more properties are being built. And they're not just affordable properties, that they are social properties. At the last four council meetings, statistics showed that 1,500 people were registered on Hampshire Home Choice, which is the choice-based letting system, haven't used. And we're just not building enough properties to meet that demand. I mean, 38 properties, that is a, a big feat and we should be celebrating it. But in the same way, we need to be encouraging more growth and more social properties being built. Thank you very much. Um, did any of your um, colleagues want to come in on that one at all? And can I just say, I think that's an absolutely stunning answer from Amy. I mean, she is a... She's an expert in this particular field. But, it shows, um, doesn't it? I don't think I don't think anyone could have answered that any any better. And I think your listeners are jolly lucky they've tuned in <laughs> and they've got any interest in housing <laughs> to, to have caught that at the right time. Yep. Uh -huh. oh, isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely? Yeah. No, Amy, I, it was an excellent summary, and I was nodding my head all the way through because you have a very clear analysis of uh, a what caused the problem and b. Uh, how we might get out of it. I mean, it's very complex. Nobody's saying it's easy, but we do need a change in political will. And that's what's missing. That is what's missing. It's a political will to cure this problem that's basically missing. And I could say things here that well, I'm not going to say. Me... <laughs> but that political will let, is, is the key to this. Let me, let me tempt you then, um, which <laughs> is that is this within is this within the gift of having Borough Council to to fix I, I um you know I, I lived in the borough for five years when there were there were there were lots of estates going up and there was percentages of how social housing in them but there was always uh there was always a tension from the local residents when you know more houses were were due to be built i i remember 
you know, for, for years walking to work, I walked past the fields um, just at the end of New Lane by the railway line there that, that then became a housing estate. Is it something that haven't Borough actually have the, you know, do they have the ability to solve the problem? Or, or is this one that, that's got to be kicked down the, the street to national government to solve? Um, it's, 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 it, it, there are two parts to the answer. Certainly national government are, is, is part of the problem. Um, the, the absurd system we have in this country, which basically places the immediate burden for additional housing on those areas which are already in the more densely populated areas. It, it's an absurdity which goes against the fundamentals of the whole of human evolution, uh, essentially. However, there is a lot, lot more scope for doing it um, than you will often be told. Um, it is perfectly possible to build your allocation of housing outside of the boundaries of your borough if it's reasonably demonstrable that you cannot do it within your boundaries. So there, there is provision for local councils. Um, the, the Conservatives in Heaven have been particularly good at trying to say it's not our fault, this is what's being pushed on us. Actually, it's a lack of imagination and a lack of effort, in my view, on their part. Um, there, there is the capacity to do this. There is even the capacity to actually benefit from um, doing this in conjunction with other neighbouring authorities, which have far more available space. Um, I think it actually comes back to really fundamentally the point that Gronje made, that, that, that this can be done. It's about political will to actually do it, essentially. But certainly the mechanisms are there in place. And I think excuses have been made at a local level. And it sort of passed, certainly here and haven't passed between the local MP claiming it's solely a matter for the local council, and then the local council saying it's solely a matter for Westminster. Um, that that is not an accurate reflection and certainly haven't borough council could go far far further to solving the problem i was i was going to also say i think what uh, we have um what the problem with haven't is that we our local plan um was rejected by the government in 20 november 21 i was going to come to this a bit later on but um because we have no local plan the council um hasn't got a, a basis on which to accept or reject planning applications and our developers um, the developers like to build big five, four, six bedroomed houses because that's how they make their money. And they don't want to put in applications to build um, affordable housing because it's not. But if we had a local plan, we would be able to um, force the issue a little bit more. So, um, so you know, we, we, until we get a local plan um, of how we're going to build this and we need the political will to get that done. Um, you know, we're, we're in a rock and a hard place. Really. Thank you, folks. I will move on to question three. So this is about the hailing ferry. Um, so the, the harbour fees are going up 366%. There's a lack of travel subsidy for the hailing ferry. Um, so could I ask Mark and Paul, obviously there was come as a twofer with matters hailing. You know, what, why is the hailing ferry so important and what needs to be done to continue to make that, that service viable? Well, for us, it's... Um... It's a vital service. Uh, it's the only other route off of Hayen apart from that uh, Vaneal Road that goes over the Langston Bridge. Um, and it is part of the Hayen Resilience Plan. Um, it's, uh, it's also something that's, uh, that brings uh, a good deal of, um, of people to the islands, about 50-ish thousand. If we, if we fall a bit short of that, then it's in danger of, of not have breaking even certainly under the current restructure of uh, <laughs> license license fees and per passenger fees um but uh, but th but those people we have it's about half and half 25,000 people coming onto the island um and uh and and they 
and, and during the Victorious Festival, for example, they weren't just coming over to the ferry boat to have a, a, a couple of chips and a couple of beers and then go back again. Uh, they were coming over to stay at the oven and some of the other campsites, mm-hmm. uh, spend money over a couple of days. I mean, the multiplier effect in action, it, it, we, we were taking a fair slice of the, the money that came through that Victorious Festival. And that was just over that weekend. Uh, and, the, and the ferry linked up with a, an open top bus that went right the way across. I mean, it's um, it's good for big events, but then during the winter, of course, um, those numbers dwindle enormously. And it's the summer trade that actually subsidises the um, the winter, but it's it's still there. And and up during home match days, you go get people going across to, uh, to myself included, uh, to watch Pompey, um, and and it's it's just something that gives us an access and freedom. It's it's um, it's. There's, I mean, you'll talk a bit about the environmental aspect yeah. as yeah. well, yeah. Uh, and and. And I'm I'm stunned. For me, I don't know whether or not to blame uh, Langston Harbour Board because everyone's looking for money, and I'm not critical holistically of Langston Harbour Board. But on this issue, I think I've got to I've got to question them because I'm not sure they're doing what they're there for. They're not actually looking after users. They're not making the place viable um, and uh, and 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 looking after the people either side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're um, they, they've they've let us down. And but but do I blame them or do I blame the governance? March 2022 is when they suddenly went from this tiered 15p all the way through to 50p to this flat rate of 50p, and then the following year 55p out of nowhere. And I and 366 percent is is just going to crush it. And then you start wondering, what are they trying to squeeze it out of business? And you get your Tim Four hat on. And, and I just, <laughs> but I I just don't understand mm-hmm. the the rationale for that. Why crush a local service that's there for users when you're a statutory body whose purpose it is it, it's to make sure people can use Langston Langston Harbour and, and it just doesn't all add up for me not mathematically but in in terms of their, their statutory obligations and and I was fuming and obviously gave a few quotes to the to the press and it was front page Friday and, and then there are actually some wider questions there as well about what its purpose is is it there for social good now I think most of us would agree that in principle it is there uh as as something more than just uh something to be a business however if you view it purely from the point of view of the harbour the ferry itself also is a key client of the harbour it's actually quite a big revenue generator in relation to the pontoon that exists there um so it becomes somewhat complex in that it depends how you view the nature and the necessity of the harbour and what the harbour is meant to be providing but even if, if you argue that it's meant to be there for social good, then there is argument for subsidy. And if the argument is that actually you have to view this purely as a business, then you have to view that ferry as a big paying client to the harbour board effectively. So, I mean, uh, however you cut it, the hailing ferry is a service um, which provides a vital, I mean, Mark's talking about um, that link that it provides, particularly during the winter as well, which is out of service, doesn't necessarily make a profit but does provide an additional link from Hailing Island to the mainland. What we need to be able to do, and what I think we would all like to see uh, in the future, um, is that service encouraged and interconnectivity built up around it. Because, you know, you only have to look on a map. The route from Hailing Island over to Portsmouth in an era when we're actually trying to save car journeys and we're trying not to pollute. The the route from Hailing Island to Portsmouth with the car journeys that get, get made every day is a social bad there is a strong strong argument to say that we subsidize for for the benefit of the social good build that service up and any profit made is actually reinvested in that harbor and in a more sustainable future um if again we only view it as a business then you can lose that argument but then you have to raise all sorts of questions about how you're treating that key client um 
yeah, and whether or not we, it's we, equitable as well. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And I think Mark and I could probably talk about this all day long. Well, and yeah, it, and, and it does get complicated. I'm, I'm going to stretch the answer a little bit more. Mm. I'm afraid just to. Um, I think they've had 150,000 in precepts, another 230,000 from Defra, and then a 20,000 pound hike on the ferry. They've taken over 100,000 pounds in the last seven years since mm -hmm. we started it back up again. Mm -hmm. And and for people to start talking about, and, and I've heard this from some members of LHB, it's not our job to subsidise the ferry. You're not. You've made over 100 grand on it the last seven years. It's not the ferry's job to subsidise you. Yeah. And actually, and Hamble and Hyde, it's free to, there's nothing, there's no fee at all for the ferry. They just let it run because it's a public good in everything mm -hmm. that Paul's just nailed. And again, from a, if you if you ignore all that public good argument, you're still faced with the argument that then if you're running a supposedly profitable business, you have to treat that ferry as a luxury client that you want to hang on to, basically, mm -hmm. not as someone who is subsidising other areas of your operation, because it is definitely, definitely bad business management to lose a client that will be giving you anywhere between 10 and 30,000 pounds a year. And, and in a nutshell, uh, you know, they're killing the golden goose and, mm -hmm. and we we don't get it and and that's why the tim four hat goes on sometimes <laughs> don't understand why why they're killing the goal so would anybody else like to come in uh, on that you know the hailing ferry is it you know again we don't we never want to offend uh, offend paul and mark is it is it just a hailing island thing or is it uh, does it have more potential benefits for the wider haven community as a whole I think I think they 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 they've said it um, exactly. It is, it is it's more than just it's more than um, a, a business. It's a service and it connects hailing to Portsmouth. Mm -hmm. We've even Mark and I've even talked about. Well, actually, we should probably build a tunnel under from uh, hailing to Portsmouth to connect the two up a bit more. But to take that ferry away, and, and, and is, I really really do think it's long I support the everything that they've that... just said regardless of everything else that I think certainly everyone in this opposition I think is would, would be in agreement with is the point about uh, sustainable travel in the future we, we really do have to you know I, I'm, I'm all in favor of getting people out of their cars but I'm equally one of those people who can uh, I, I can get a little bit crazy sometimes and when, when sometimes people on if you like our side of the political fence preach these things to people and don't offer alternative solutions well the hailing ferry is a perfect example of an alternative solution if we're going to get people out of their vehicles these are exactly the things that we need to be providing and the state needs to be looking at what provision it can include with that as a social good basically you know and, and this is no different to saying you know why we tax uh, why we subsidize healthcare, for example, and why we tax cigarettes. Um, the, these are perfectly normal things that we do within any uh, society. We, we support those things which have a wider social good. But I mean, as it happens, it doesn't need subsidy, it just needs it support. It just needs. It, it, it needs. It doesn't to, need to be ripped yeah. off. Yeah. And on that note with subsidizing, I mean, there's been an increase in people using the buses since they've had the £2 fare caps. And I know that yeah, in, within okay. the Portsmouth city boundaries, they're offering free buses now on a weekend, on a Saturday, I believe it is. And I know a few of my friends who live downtown who are like making the most and going out with their friends, which is, you know, increasing the revenue that the city is getting because there's more incentive for them to ditch their cars and to go out. And then they can go down to a local bar, have a couple of drinks, and they know they can get the bus home. Um, and it's exactly it's exactly like that. I mean, um, if I was to go out with my husband, where my bus route previously was very, very poor, we'd have to drive and we wouldn't really have an option mm. because it's either drive or you have to be home by 6 p.m. And I don't really want to have my dinner at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so, you know, fortunately now we live quite near to 
various different bus routes. I think we're on like, I think we worked out the other day, we're on four different bus routes now, which is great for us because we're both trying to cut down on our emissions. Um, we're both able to, you know, plan a whole day out and go down to Portsmouth, go and do a bit of shopping, have a bite to eat, and then still get home at a reasonable time. Um, but I do agree entirely that more needs to be done to support um, public transport, including the Henry Island. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'll just chip in to say that the Department of Transport uh, seem to have uh, decided that they are not investing in the future. Uh, and you can look at the closing of the ticket, uh, railway ticket offices as an example of that. They are, are not interested in growing the business. They seem to be interested in saving money today, save a penny today and, and charge a pound the next time. I mean, all of these things are so short term. Just one final little question on the. So obviously the hailing ferry has has two sides to it. Um, are you getting any interest support or or kind of you know is there a same feeling coming from the ward councillors in in Portsmouth where the hailing ferry lands? Um, I have to say I think that um, when I went to the meeting last Friday I did not see anyone there. Um, you know, I know that, that Paul will support when he goes um, to to the board meetings. I'm, I was astounded that I, I, no, there was no recognition actually about what they'd done. There was no humility about the fact that they have totally inappropriately put a completely random, um, inexplicable fee that is going to crush that service uh, um, in, into place. That, that I think they they, were, they seem to be in denial, and and I have to say I'm quite critical in a totally non-partisan way across the board of everyone who was there um, on that issue. And it is just that issue. They bought obviously lots of the table and various other. It's not just about the that meeting was not just about the the ferry. They bought lots of the table on all the other issues. And and the Halber Ball had some great plans. I mean, there were you know plans. I'm, I'm sure they're not private. Um, where they were thinking about um, you know having muscles again in the um, uh, in the harbour, you know, there was conversation about that, and they, you know, they're ambitious in some really good ways. Mm, mm. But, um, but on this issue, I think they've they really have um, they haven't been paying attention. I, th I think there's, there's perhaps just worth noting that there, there's a slight difference between who is on the board and some of the wider views of the councillors uh, in Portsmouth. So there, mm. there has historically been a lot of actually, I, I, I would actually say there's been historically a lot of positive support from councillors over on the Portsmouth side but perhaps more focused on that interconnectivity and the service and how it operationally runs rather than necessarily the management and oversight of it necessarily. So perhaps that's just a distinction that's worth making. It's interesting. It's not a particularly partisan issue. And as you know, mm -hmm. I talked about in the last uh, last one, was, uh, Councillor Claire um, Satchwell, as she was then, uh, Buchanan now, uh, after getting married. Um, she she was absolutely excellent on the on the ferry. She she was on her metal, mm -hmm. knew what she was doing. Um, so, trust obviously i chipped in my half and and together we spearheaded that campaign and um you know and it was it was all about just being effective and supporting residents it's not does not have to be a partisan issue and if it is i'll tell you what the people who are on the side of the ferry uh, are, are going to make massive headway locally massive headway and mm -hmm. they need to be ready for that perfect thank you folks i'll hand you over to simon Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, so um, staying in the environs of the harbour. Um, so with um, with regular um, with sewage, uh, the, pro the, the sewage processing plant at Bud's Farm regularly discharging into the into the harbour. How 
how do residents feel about having to pay to have their own poo? You could use different words, but we've gone with that. Um, to have their own uh, poo pumped back into the waters that they swim, paddle, surf or sail in. And if I can ask that first to uh, Gronje, please. OK, thank you. Well, how do you think they feel? They're fuming. They're furious. I yeah. I d I, it was a bit of a leading question, to be fair. I, I do apologise. Um, uh, yeah. Um, the awareness of uh, just what's been going on, dumping sewage, mm. has been slow to grow outside of the area. But thanks to recent campaigns by May Day and uh, Fergal Sharkey and the BBC have now picked it up, the awareness is, is there because we have a situation where we have not just storm discharges, which are legal, but also dry weather discharges, which definitely aren't. And uh, climate change is magnifying the issue um, because uh, we have more heavy rain and therefore more uh, times when they will have to uh, release the sewage. Um, but uh, the water companies, I mean, it's not, you know, the, the stuff is out there just about how much they've creamed off in terms of uh, 74 billion pounds has been paid to uh, shareholders and investors since they were privatized in uh, 1989. And we're the, um, we're the only, well, the first uh, place in the world to privatize water and it was an absolute disaster <laughs> because um, we either have an infrastructure that is funded for us and um, by us, or we have this system, which is effectively allowing um, foreign, foreign investors, because they mostly are, uh, to hoover money out of the country because that's actually what's happening. And uh, I met a local uh, envir um, international environmental lawyer in Emsworth who told me that she had actually spoken to the United Nations about privatizing water and that she used Southern Water as a, a test uh, case to show why you never privatize your water. Uh, it should never have been privatized. However, we are in this situation. So now the water companies are uh, recognizing, oh, you've got a big PR problem. And they're saying, oh, don't, enforcement's not the way forward. I don't know what else. <laughs> enforcement is why it's gone wrong uh, so far because of what uh, we're set up to keep our bills low, which they have done because they've only increased 40 percent over decades, which relatively speaking, and given that the water did need to, uh, treatment did need to be improved, um, they've, uh, they haven't succeeded in that, but they've also taken the eye off the ball completely about what these companies are doing with their uh, profits and how they're using the money. Um, and it's not just, it's not fair to say it's just um, the water companies, because they also have no control over the number of houses that are added into the system. Because uh, they have to, uh, they are obliged to connect any new houses onto the water system. Now down in Sinai Lane, you have that horrendous situation where uh, the uh, new homes there, they're not even connected to the sewage, so they're collecting them in tankards uh, because it's just absolutely awful. So the whole system, uh, does need, uh, well, again, political will, just to put it right. Uh, you know, that that's, I, I could go on. Uh, I mean, uh, and people are mad now and they're saying, why are we paying for this? Well, I'm afraid to say, no choice. 
because the money is not going to come from those investors. That money's gone, gone, gone. Uh, and just to underline that, um, I learned recently that Portsmouth Water are raising the water bills by 50% by 2003. Sorry, it's 2030. So in the next seven years, our water bills for Portsmouth Water. Now, their reasoning is this is cheap water. Uh, it's the cheapest in the country. It's cheapest in the country because uh, up until now it's had the need uh, less treatment than any other water. If you take water out of aquifers, that's kind of like costs one unit, whereas to take it out of a river is three to four times as much. And if you recycle it, uh, traditional methods, you're talking about 15 times uh, the cost. So, you know, that that's, you know, that's the situation. So we're, we're kind of... Um, as I see it, we people are now alert, and I think, uh, what can we do? Uh, keep up the pressure, I would say. Keep talking about it, because uh, what we need is to change that political will to put it right. Thank you. Anyone, anyone else want to come in on the on the poo in our water? If I, if I can. Sorry, I'm aware I've talked quite a bit. No, I've noticed that. that a you're lot here to that. talk. Don't worry. We're here to hear from you. That's the point. <laughs> You'll be a bit sick of me by the end, I'm sure. Um, but I've noticed in a lot of full council meetings that across the board, irregardless of political parties, there seems to be a very strong and coherent, um, almost consensus about the distaste and distrust we have towards some water. And I'll emphasise on the distaste again. Um, yeah, it seems to to me that it is a very clear issue for a lot of councillors that you know they don't our residents don't trust southern water, and I think I not to blow my own trumpet, pretty much nailed that on the head when I said, you know, irregardless of what political party and irregardless of what area of the borough we're representing, all of our residents are upset with the way that we're being treated by Southern Water and the way that the environment is being treated by Southern Water. Um, and it's it just seems very painful to me that there are so many um, political figureheads who are identifying that this is an issue and that this is something that people are really concerned about, but they don't seem to want to do anything. Or whenever something is suggested, they want to almost create barriers to something being done. And it just seems that it's just quite, it, it almost feels like you're just going around in circles sometimes. I don't know if anyone else feels the same on that. Um, I entirely agree with that, Amy. I think I think we're yet again going to say about the political will. I mean, it's felt very much to me yes. like there are, uh, if I say two sides, it's about two mentalities. There seems to be there seems to be a broad agreement about the problem. But as, as Amy just said, from one side, there really seems to be this inherent fear almost of of, of doing anything about it. Um, I'd like to think that the group of people you've got here on your show tonight are are, are the other side of that. Um, but certainly that's what it's felt like to me, almost as if there is a, a, I don't know, a subconscious desire to be on the side of the shareholders and big business, even when actually in your conscious mind, you're kind of openly saying it's wrong. So it, it, it is a frustrating situation um, when we are in a minority and, and, and feel that, that there isn't necessarily the political will to do more than actually just say the right words, basically, rather than take the right actions. And there's another aspect to this. Uh, Southern Water want to uh, impose water recycling on us. They call it recycling. I call it uh, processing. And they uh, want to build a what I think will be a very large further processing plant in Bedhampton, down by the foreshore, to take sewage from all over Hampshire, all over the south of England, uh, process it uh, till it's... Uh, eyes pop 
and then put it into the uh, Haven't Thicket Reservoir, which nobody's mentioned directly. Our, uh, the reservoir we were promised years ago by Portsmouth Water, it was going to be beautiful, it was going to be filled with our wonderful Bedhampton spring water, and it was going to have leisure facilities incorporated, enhance all our lives, and then Southern Water pop up and announce they're going to put recycled sewage into it. And it seems as not a lot we can do about it. A group of us in Bedhampton are fighting it, raising awareness, challenging Southern Water. But it's uh, deemed to be a nationally important infrastructure project. So the de decision about whether it will go ahead will be made in Westminster. So you've got this to look forward to. And I, I agree, um, Philippa. The uh, yes, the, the whole having thicket reservoir issue is is uh, sometimes detracts. Uh, that issue is detract sometimes detracts from the sewage in the harbour. That they, they uh, but they are intertwined. Um, and the other thing I was just going to say, there is a little bit of a you know the wider environmental impact of the sewage in the harbour. Just along from Bud's Farm, there's um, the sea wall has uh, broken down and the sea's ingressed into Southmore. Now the, um, the coastal squeeze means that um, the harbours do need, um, with rising sea levels, the harbours do need more uh, areas to to flood onto. And that Southmore was an ideal place. But the problem is that the um, the water that's going over that area is sewage water, um, and so the promised salt marsh. That ought to be growing as a result of that ingress. Um, it, 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 if you look at an aerial view of that area, it's it's just a horrible mess. It's not salt, not salt marsh at all. So, um, you know, we have the added problem in that, um, you know, the 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 sewage affects the um, the wildlife and the grow the plants and things in the harbour and the intertidal area as well. Yeah, and just to be absolutely clear, there's nothing about the plans for yeah. recycling sewage that will reduce the impact of sewage flowing into the into Langston Harbour. Uh, no, no, to exactly. assume the two are linked, but no, exactly. there'll be just as much sewage flowing in no. as before. I mean, Teresa Coffey was down uh, not long ago, I saw her with, with Alan Mack, I think they were having a photo, and um, on the <laughs> on the beach, and Teresa was saying how That's lovely the, the sea is um, around Hayling. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think she had a, mm -hmm. a swim, but she'll be coming down later to make a decision on that wastewater uh, recycling, uh, Simon and Ian. So we'll see if we can grab her and get her on here. And and it's, it's it speaks to the general distrust of the public when uh, Theresa Coffey was down making that statement the other week. Um, the local community on Hayling. Um, the windsurfing community on hailing are basically just laughing at her La it's just a combination of anger and laughter because they know that what they're listening to is absolute drivel basically and we're on a tourist island again we're we're, we're losing money local businesses are losing money with this and it doesn't help when a mm -hmm. when a government minister comes down yeah. and spouts what is known to be drivel mm -hmm. the sort of thing that goes into uh, the harbor yeah yes i thought i thought 26% of people have not gone on the water this year in the UK because the of their fears over the sewage. And, and the sewage is known about uh, into Langston and Chichester Harbour is known as far wide as Australia. Because in uh, November, I met people from Australia who said, oh, we've heard about this. And that's why uh, we were here on holiday. And that's why we haven't gone surfing. Yeah. This, this this island and it and it's not touted enough, but this island is the home is where windsurfing was invented. Yeah, um, it's part of the DNA of Hailing Island, and that is currently 
that reputation, that history, everything that's associated with it is being destroyed because the world of windsurfing is learning that Hailing Island is surrounded by shit, if you'll excuse my language. I, I think that sums the situation up. It's a, it's a topic we've covered on the podcast before, and I think um, it's definitely one we will pick up again until we see the change that, as you touched on, I think in is everyone agrees what the problem is and it's about time that a solution was found. So I want to just move us on to our, our next question, a subject very close to my heart as somebody who spent 23 years of my career toddling up and down new lanes. So with the closure of some of those big businesses like Wyeth that became Pfizer and Procter & Gamble Tam Brands in the middle of Lee Park and, and you know, Kenwood being scaled back, is there a risk that haven't as a manufacturing you know town or site it, it is starting to fade away and will end up being a kind of dormitory town where people come to they they sleep there but they go and work elsewhere and can i address that first to jill please oh, thank you well that's an interesting um question um given that uh, the foray over the new amazon warehouse that's just opened on a uh, new lane um earlier this year um so the decision to, to open that was taken before I was a councillor, but there was quite an astonishing mm. lack of scrutiny in the planning process that allowed that development, um, because there's quite a lot of opposition to it from local residents. Um, so yes, it did bring jobs to the area, but I think it's more a question of whether New Lane is the right place for those sorts of businesses, um, in that it's brought no traffic, noise, and um, after it was open, we realised also light pollution um, to, res to the adjoining residential areas on both sides of the railway. So th there's an, an, a lot of um, uh, disquiet about that big development there. Um, we wanted, and we still want, um, the council to follow through on the promise to build a link road from New Lane over to the A27, which would certainly ease the um, traffic both for businesses and for the increased number of houses being built in the area. So, um, and I'll just want to add at this point, there's also um, Haven't Civic Society, and if anybody knows their, their um, looks at their website and their news, they keep a very close eye on these things. Um, they have raised the question about exactly how much um, business rate Amazon are paying um, for 32 New Lane. Um, it doesn't appear to be paying any, um, so we'll quite question um, the, the nature of that development. So there's, a lot, there's much to get to the bottom of there. So, um, so bringing businesses to the Haven area, I mean, there are other areas um, when um, the Amazon was was being discussed, we thought that actually there's Dunsbury Park or there's Broadmarsh, right? Both near the um, A3, A27 link, much e easier to get onto the motorway network um, rather than be disrupted to local homes. So there's there's other places where businesses can be encouraged to um, to 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 build. Um, there's obviously yes, the Solent Road area as well. Um, and I mentioned earlier on, um, we also um, haven't doesn't have the local plan. As I said earlier, it was it was rejected by the government in November 21. And we're still working on it. And without that plan, um, you know, we don't have a policy to turn to. We unable to regulate planning applications and can't. Um, and this, we're, we're open to speculative developments that we don't necessarily want. So we do need to get that local plan in place. Um, in the regeneration of um, Waterlooville, um, haven't Borough Council did suspend par car parking charges in the car park there. Um, and by all accounts, that was quite a success and brought people to shop in Waterlooville and to support the businesses. Um, this is tricky because I do remember or my almost my first um, session as a training session as a councillor back in May this year, um, we were reminded very clearly of the amount of income that borough, the borough gets from parking. And so 
don't miss that it was the underlying issue. But I, I do think we need to think about that because um, parking deters high parking charges does do deter people from coming to shop in places like uh, Haven't Centre, Lee Park Centre, and uh, and Waterlooville. So um, we need we need to we need to address that really. Um, the light's fading in my room here. I can't see my notes. Um, making Solent Road um, with people park for free in Solent Road shops that haven't. Um, we need to make the um, well signposted route across to Haven't Centre so that people don't forget about the high street shops there. So there's various bits and pieces that can be done. Um, I, I have had a complaint from a, a parking in the um, Meridian Centre of a local business who was using their own vehicle to um, make deliveries to his business and was slapped a parking fee on because he didn't have an official delivery van parking in the delivery area. So, um, you know, we need we do need to listen to local proprietors and businesses and and find out what they want and how we can support them um, to to prosper their business as well and work with, you know, that there is a shoplifting issue. So work with police on on uh, on that. So there's, there's various things we can do. Um, oh, and the one last thing I will say was the um, in going back to Haven't Reservoir, I, they, they've put up a whole series of caravans for the local workers there, which um, implies that they're bringing in workers from elsewhere. And I'm, want, I do want to question why we're not employing local people to work on the reservoir as another source of jobs for the next few years, for a number of years. Thank you, Jill. Uh, anybody else want to come in on, on manufacturing and jobs in Haven? Uh, well, well I, I, I had a quick look at uh, what, what the jobs were in Haven and 17.1% are retail and then followed by education at 12% and construction at 9.8%. So I think your point about uh, manufacturing and Haven, I think I think that ship mm. might have sailed oh, looking at the figures. Oh, very sad, as I say, <laughs> I spent five years with Gem Plus and then 18 years with, uh, with Wyeth and Pfizer and and uh, drove down New Lane the other day, and it, it, it appeared to be a, a shadow of what it once was. So, If I can um, just add to the, the concept of dormitory town, yeah. is that all right? Um, I just wonder if that's a, a reasonable uh, phrase to use, for not, not just for having where there's an argument to suggest that, but for a large number of, of towns uh, around the Brain Belt. So, well, Oxford, Cambridge, Milton mm. Keynes, where actually you've got a lot of houses being built. There's no obvious identity. Um, there's not uh, a lot of manufacturing. There's no jobs that, that seem to come organically from the area, but they're within range and they've got good transport links. And actually on that basis, I think that having could still have an identity mm. and still have a history and a future, but not necessarily um, center around a specific industry. Mm. And, and I'm, I just wonder if we, we don't want to be too too harsh on it just because it hasn't got you know a whopping great factory or um, an existing uh, manufacturer that's that's thinking of you know of, of building and growing and, and and i think that we'll see more of this of course in all manufacturing towns up and down the country but particularly the north where there's that massive gap mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I, sorry i i will say one thing the thing about haven't is uh the employ the jobs are at the bottom of the scale uh, for example years ago when langston yeah. Uh, park business park employed uh, uh, 3,000 people only 10% of them came from haven't and virtually all of them were at the bottom of the scale they were receptionists and cleaners and uh, if you look at the figures about you know the number of uh, elementary jobs as it were in haven't it's 21% as against the southeast as a whole of 12% so you know we, we uh, 
we are losing out on well-paid jobs. Although, although to be fair, that reflects the demographics and the education level of the area. Yeah. It's a low education level, so actually well, the jobs... Although, although the converse of that, of course, is that if, you, need if, to... if you look to bring in more uh, uh, white-collar, high-end jobs, if you like, then do you attract the people to the place? Therefore, is that is that what you want to do? And then equally, then do you are you then potentially um, alienating and making it more difficult for those people who actually are the working class roots of that community? We need to um, build more aspiration into the local education, convince people that uh, there's a wide range of jobs out there. They should uh, anything's possible. But the idea of a dormitory town, what used to be a dormitory town, is now a place that people work from home two, three, four days a week and hopefully go out for lunch and use local services. So I think the whole thing needs rethinking. But it's, it's just really important that our local school kids learn to aspire learn that they can get qualifications there are good jobs out there and we need to bring some of those to haven't i've found whenever i've been out of work and trying to find work within haven't the majority of those have been zero hour contracts and you know i can't pay the bills on a zero hour contract because i don't know what i'm going to do one week from the next you know one week i might have 40 hours of work the next week it might only be 12. And it's entirely, I mean, I've I've mentioned this before in full council meetings and I'll mention it until I'm blue in the face that we can't expect people to be happy with being given zero hour contracts on the absolute bottom of the pay scales. We need to be building, uh, you know, the aspiration. You know, I, I was very fortunate. I managed to get to university. I, I did university. It was the hardest four years of my life, but I did it. And now I'm in a point of my life where I'm wanting to work maybe a bit more locally, a bit more close to home. I'm very settled and there is just not that opportunity. I, I think I've only ever had two jobs in Haven and both of those have been retail jobs. Um, so it is very difficult. And I think especially for young people leaving education where perhaps they don't want to go to university, where the only options within Haven are, um, you know, typically your, your shop jobs, your zero hour contracts it can deter people a bit from staying in the area. And I think it's so important to me as a, as a Lee Parker, <laughs> if I may, to retain that. Uh, you know, I'm proud of being from the area and my husband's recently moved into the area and he's only been here like a month, two months now. And he's he said now he feels like a fully fledged Lee Parker. He feels like he's part of the community. And that's what I love about the area. It is a community, it is a home and it's a hub. And I think that not allowing people to have aspirations in in terms of their career is really taken away from the the part of the community that I think is the most important, and that is the people, the 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 heart of it, if you will. Perfect. Thank you. I'm going to hand over okay. to Simon for question six. So, um, sorry, I've lost track names for a second. I, I, for some reason in my head, thought that we were going for seven next. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know where. Um, we so, can head um, to seven next if you want to, Simon. In uh, terms no, no, of no, time, that's, but, um, no, that's fine. That was just um, my um, me losing the plot a little bit. It's the heat getting to me. Um, uh, so, Gronya, um, haven't been considered considered one of the safest blue seats in the country. Although I'm not quite sure what what counts for a safe blue seat these days. Um, how can you make other voices and opinions heard? So that's the the challenge for you for yourselves. I've got a little graphic that I'll put up that shows 
obviously you've got uh, 30 conservative councillors and four Labour councillors, two Liberal Dems and uh, one Green and, and one Independent. How can, how can you get those voices heard? Uh I think I would say the same as every single other person here, and that is that we work harder than anybody else. We work collaboratively. Uh, we are give people a chance. Uh, we what I find on the doorstep is that people really, really do want change. They need change, and uh, if we put ourselves forward and show that yes, you can have this change, then people are prepared to give us a chance. Uh, and it is about uh, always being local first, middle and last uh, to be there for every single resident to show that we can help. I mean, I think Mark and Paul and Amy and Gillian uh, and uh, Philippa have all for years been working, 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 working. And it just hasn't come out of the blue. But people have, have realised, hold on, I do need change. These people are people I can trust. I can uh, uh, they will turn up, they'll go to meetings, they'll go to ward surgeries, they'll canvas events, they, they will volunteer, they work collaboratively. Uh, these are the people that are going to be different and they're going to be brave. They're going to be uh, speak up and say things that the other councillors... I, I notice that in council meetings now that the other councillors are m much more willing to actually speak up and say stuff. There's The meetings are lasting twice as long <laughs> And that's just by us being there. And I think the more people see that having opposition is good for everyone, the more people will be willing to put the money on this horse or that horse just to get a, a better representation. So that's my 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 uh, stick on it. Thank you very much. Anyone else want to weigh in quickly on that one? <laughs> what I was just saying, so I, I, I grew up around here, but I, I spent a lot of time in London and I was uh, fortunate enough to be in a, in a, a Labour run constituency um, but and a Labour run council. Um, but I think we've got the, the same issue there in, in predominantly Labour as you've got here, predominantly Conservative. There is no um, uh, scrutiny that goes on if you've got too many of one party. Um, so, so uh, hopefully we are demonstrating that just by, our, you know, we can ask questions and we, we're raising the level of debate um, just by being there. And as Goyne said, um, as we've goaded other people into action as well. Um, so I think it, it's healthy for democracy to have um, opposition parties, whatever the colours. I'm very, very glad you said that because I, I was going to say, um, and I've said before on this programme, and I said a lot before the election about the need for democracy, how it was a one party state and how that was incredibly unhealthy for democracy. Um, it's exactly that. Um, and I, I, I think certainly um, we've unnerved a lot of people, going back to the point that Gronje made. I think initially we unnerved people, and now people are actually becoming far more comfortable speaking out now because of the difference that we've, that we've brought uh, to the council, effectively. And I think probably even for some council workers, it's, it's without, without being critical of anyone, where you end up with that situation it does sort of become this one happy family actually for a lot of council staff i i think it can become quite uh ingrained effectively not anyone is being deliberately biased but it actually just opens up the whole organization the, the, the whole mentality of the place has to change when you have a group of people in opposition who are continually raising questions everyone has to be on their guard no one can rest on their laurels and that, that, that is essentially, I mean, again, it, it goes back to the ancient Greeks. You have to have that in opposition. You have to have opposition within within a, a democracy. And if you don't, you will have 
as Jill, and this is why I'm so happy that Jill mentioned it, you will have Labour councils in parts of the country which have been absolute Labour dominated for years and years and years. And effectively, you will see exactly the same thing where there is where there is no opposition effectively. So I'd, I'd like to think that we've all, um, in our way, added to what Hammond Borough Council is. Um, and how, second part of your question, it's one of the safest seats. How do you get voices really heard? Well, again, I think we're getting our voices heard but we're getting the voices of residents heard who are particularly an awful lot of them non-partisan and just want to feel represented. And that again comes back to that key point is it's not about party strikes, it's about the importance of opposition full stop within democracy. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just to add to that, I think I'd say in one word, comms, it's all about comms. Mm. And that doesn't just mean getting your voice out there, it means getting the residents' voices to you. Mm -hmm. Perfect. You've segued us nicely into our final question, which is, um, we've 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 playfully described you as a, a as a rebel alliance. Obviously, three parties represented today. I guess in a in a in a in a council like Haven't, where you are the minority, what advantages do you have in terms of the way you organise yourselves? But then, are there advantages that the incumbent party slash council have? that means that you struggle to compete? And can I ask that to Paul? Yeah, I think I think the first and most obvious thing to say is that, that and actually one thing that you can't be critical of the incumbent Conservatives for is there will always be a certain degree of it being difficult for us because we are numerically smaller. And actually that's democracy and I have no objection whatsoever to that. How do we get ourselves uh, a foothold in the door? Um, I think all of us since we've become councillors have been at pains uh, to actually make ourselves known within the council, to fit it and, and become part of that wider organisation, but equally to make it absolutely clear to the existing status quo that we are deliberately there and we are there as opposition. We are not there to be part of the same clique. And I think that's genuinely been a little bit of a cultural problem, not just necessarily for Conservative members, but equally people who have been officers there for a long time who are only used to that 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 one party state effectively um so i think again six and seven kind of almost merge into one another as questions in that it's about our presence being there and offering opposition um i think i'll shut up and let someone else talk about the uh the the, the disadvantages now well i'm not going to talk about the disadvantages i'm just ignoring them i know what i want to do and i'm going to try and do it and Please. to the best of my ability and not worry about uh, the numbers. I will make my case and see what happens. I think one of the one of the issues um, in certain areas of the, well, I mean, I'm thinking particularly in the park is in, in terms of getting a foothold, um, we need to persuade people to go out and vote. It's not that they vote conservative, it's just that they don't vote. Um, in, in St Faith's, uh, the turnout for the local election was 40%, but um, last year um, in, in Lee Park, in, in some of the areas, it was only 18% of people came out to vote. And so, and, and the reasons for that, you know, you could argue them day and night, but, you know, people are disaffected with politicians. They brand all you mm -hmm. politicians, they're all the same. Um, you know, so, so our, our challenge is to, to prove that that's not the case, that um, they will be heard, we will respond. I can't, I try to, I, I respond to every casework um, that I get. I can't sort every single problem out, but at least an explanation of why I can't goes a long, long way towards um, proving that we, we are doing some work. So 
um, you know, we, we need to persuade people that um, it is worth going out to vote. Mm. Uh, and not only do we do the work, we actually talk about it as well very, very publicly, which has come as something of a shock to an awful lot of the Conservatives. And, and very often, actually, where there are frustrations sometimes internally, the reality is oh. that we have to do it politically and we have to do it publicly. And by doing that, we are actually getting a foothold in because our voices are being heard, because there is, that's democracy, public pressure and public voice gets behind that. And that's actually healthy for a democracy. Thank you, Paul. Oh, sorry, Perfect. Oh, we sorry, have Amy, reached time. Amy, Amy, um, sorry, was Amy just going to um, come oh, in? Sammy, did you want to yeah. come in? Just um, I was there. just. Gonna, I think yeah. for me yeah. personally, one of my biggest advantages and disadvantages is my age. I'm the youngest councillor in Haven, um, which is very daunting. Um, I am 24, so I wouldn't necessarily class myself as very young or very old. I think I'm somewhere in the middle there. Um, but I find that that can be quite um, difficult for a lot of people who have perhaps been used to um, older members and also some of the older members, um, I think sometimes think the ideas I have are pie in the sky and like, you know, you often get, you know, the oh socialist utopia sort of um, brush smeared against you. But I think that it works to my advantage because there are young people in Warren Park who are messaging me saying, you know, you're inspiring. We're really grateful to have someone like you who's right. given Lee Park a platform. And especially because I grew up in the area as well, and I know the air, I know the area like the back of my hand. You literally, you could say, take me to this place, I'll take you there. I know exactly where it is because it's my home. It always has been my home. And I think that although it does come as quite a big disadvantage for me, it is also a massive advantage for the community because they're seeing someone who is a local person who doesn't come from money, doesn't come from a large amount of um, wealth, being able to have a platform to increase awareness for issues within the wards and within you know their area, their home. Perfect. Amy, thank you. In the interest of time, uh, I think that's a great way to close the show. Thank you, everybody, for your contribution today. And for those of you that have been listening, you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our, and our guests have been uh, for Labour. We've had Mark Coates from Hailing East, Amy Redstall from Warren Park, Gillian Harris uh, from St Faith's, from the Lib Dems. We've had Philippa Gray from Bedhampton, Paul Gray from Hailing West. From the Greens, we've had Gronya Rayson. Thank you. And I've Thank been Simon much. Sansbury. Please do join us again at the same time next week, uh, where we'll be starting um, the first of our ward reports. So this is a suggestion that one of our viewers um, put into us that we've actually um, that we've gone with, um, and has been um, received uh, very well. So we'll be turning our attention to Paulsgrove Ward in Portsmouth, um, and inviting the three councillors of that ward to come on the show and talk to us about how life is in their wards and what work they've been doing. Uh, for their residents so join us next week at 627 please do remember to like follow subscribe etc etc send tea send biscuits um we will appreciate it see yeah, you next give week five, give us five stars wherever you get your podcast yes indeed <laughs>
Getting Pompey Politics podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy.